Good morning. My name is Wade. I am one of the pastors here at IGC, along with Pastor Jesse. And we have been going through a series in First Peter. We're uh, kind of in the middle of it. Um, today's passage is from First Peter chapter 2, verses 20, 18 through 25. So uh, it'll be right behind me. You can also look in, on the, in the bulletin or on your phones or if you have a physical Bible. Um, that'd be awesome. Let's listen to God's word to us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. So what Pastor Jesse and I have been communicating as we've been going through the book of First Peter in these past months and in the coming months, is that to follow Jesus is to live a life that's radically different from the world. If you are a follower of Christ, you have different goals, you have different motivations, you know that your real home is not here. Your allegiance is to a king, not a country or a political system political party or an ethnic or cultural group, we know that we're bound by a set of different ethical principles that seem really out of touch with the world and the culture that we live in, and yet we have a freedom that is beyond what the world can understand. We engage with people differently, we regard ourselves differently, and we find our joy in the unseen. And the term that we've been using the past few weeks is exile. If you are a follower of Christ, you are an exile. And what we want as a church and for our members is that we all live lives that reflect this reality, that we really do not belong here in this world. Last, last week, Pastor Jesse, he, uh, he talked about living a beautiful life. And the text that he spoke from was the beginning of this section in First Peter, where Peter, he, he teaches what a beautiful life looks like in the context of submission. So if we look at uh, chapter 2, um, the, the sections are broken up this way. Uh, first, it's our relationship to authority. What does submission look like in relationship to civil authority? Second, it's our relationship to those immediately above us in positions of authority. And finally, it's our relationship to our spouses or, or our relationship to those in our household. This is how First, first Peter breaks up this, I, this um, what it looks like in all these different contexts. And what we're learning is that the Christian life is one of submission. In any meaningful relationship in our lives, there is a type of submission that we're called to. Submission. Now, this may sound off-putting because we often think of submission as it's something that we do begrudgingly. 
it's, if it's something that we do at all, it's because we're forced to. It's not because we want to do it. And who wants to hear about submitting? And before we go any further, let me point out that in addition to submission, we'll also be talking about suffering today. Submission and suffering. And not only that, not only are we going to hear about what it is to submit and to suffer, but we're going to learn that we're supposed to submit and suffer. And we're called to embrace those troublesome concepts. So, that's what you're going to hear today. And welcome. Submit and suffer, guys. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the second relationship in Peter's list of parties that we submit to. Our text, it speaks of the relationship between a servant and a master. And as we hear these terms, it might raise a few eyebrows. Because this is the type of language that evokes some very negative imagery in our minds. And before we get to the meat of the text, I want to spend a few minutes talking about this idea of slavery and submission and masters in the Bible, because this can be kind of a sticky point, and I don't want us to get hung up on it, but I do feel like it is reasonable for us to address it. So... Slavery in the context of the original audience in New Testament letters, this was different from the slavery that we're more familiar with nowadays. Um, Specifically, we think of the chattel slavery that was prevalent in the 18th and 19th century. And um, if you know much about human trafficking or slave labor in today's world, you know that it's prevalent. There are millions upon millions of slave laborers in the world. And this is what comes to mind when we think of slaves and masters. But we need to think about what Peter is writing in the context of his culture. So historians, they tell us that in Roman society, the the audience that Peter was writing to, uh, up to 20% of the population were classified as slaves. And slavery was more associated, more often associated with servanthood. And there was not um, abuse, which is... What we, abuse like how we, what we know of chattel slavery. Um, the slaves back in this time, they were often entrusted with tasks that required working closely with the household of the master. So, for example, in the New Testament, there are slaves that are referenced. Um, they're responsible for maintaining the household. Slaves were sometimes responsible for the finances of the family. Some were treated as if they were members of the family. They would spend time together. There was a mutual kindness and respect in this master and slave relationship. Some slaves were buried in the graves of the families that they worked for because they were so loved by their families. And this is not to say that abusive, evil slavery did not exist in the first century uh, Greco-Roman culture. And that masters didn't look down on their slaves. Um, this is actually has been the case throughout all of history. Anytime there is a position of authority and someone that submits to that authority, there has always been abuse, even if there isn't the master and slave designation. And there is a whole lot we can say about this, and we can read books, and I can recommend some books to you if you want to learn a little bit more. But I want to mention this because we should understand that the slavery that is mentioned in First Peter is, in, in the context of First Peter, is quite different from what we tend to think of uh, of it as um, like we do today. And um, just a few more words on this, um, because as we look at a passage like First Peter chapter two, um, 
some people can make the accusation that, well, the Bible says, has it in there. It must condone, condone slavery. It must be okay, the Bible says. And um, we need to look at the Bible in the larger context. Of course, people can cherry-pick verses. And actually, in the 19th century in, uh, in the West, there was a very active abolitionist movement, uh, especially in England. And it was led by Christians, and their opponents were often, they, they thought of themselves as Christians as well. And they said, look, we believe the Bible as well. Look at passages like this that talk about the master and slave. And they argued for the continuation of slavery um, with passages like this from the, from the, that we just read. And um, this is a kind of terrible way of reading scripture because anytime you cherry pick verses... In the Bible, you are going to get whatever you want. Um, the way that we look about the Bible is we look at it as one big story that tells of God's rescue and redemption of mankind. And this is going to be true. The arc of the biblical story is freedom and and the, the chains falling off of slaves. This is one of the, thing, one of the aspects of um, the biblical story. And... and um, so, one final word, and, uh, and then we'll get into the meat of the text. Uh, the Bible's primary concern is not about societal change. The inner transformation of the soul, this is the primary concern of the Bible. Any positive effects that stem from the Bible's teachings are secondary, but it's only after the hearts and minds of individuals and families and churches have been transformed by the Spirit of God. So let me read you one quote from a professor, a New Testament professor at Westmont College, and I'll end this portion and we'll move into the text. Um, Karen Reeder, this is her name. New Testament authors did not demand the end of slavery as a social and economic system. However, they did critique the core assumptions of Roman slavery, the dehumanizing of people made in God's image, abusiveness as a matter of course, and the very idea of ownership over human lives. As in Revelation 18, slavery and the slave trade brought divine judgment on the Roman Empire. The message of mutual submission is fundamental to discipleship in the New Testament. So, um, again, there's a lot more that we can say about it, but in case that was a sticking point for us, um, I want to address it a bit, and now we can look at what the thrust of Peter's message is. So, we're talking about submission and suffering. So, my first point is about submission. Uh, My second point is about suffering, and my third point is about entrusting ourselves to God. Our first point is going to be our shortest point. Peter talks about submission in the master and slave relationship. For us in our modern times, it's, it's the thing that would be most parallel to that is the, uh, the manager and boss relationship. If you work in a, for a company, uh, most likely you have someone above you, someone who has authority over you, someone who gives you assignments, someone who manages you, someone who tells you this is what you should be doing. And this is kind of, uh, the, the baseline type of attitude we have, we should have toward authority in the workplace. Um, you don't even have to be a believer to, uh, to understand this. 
um, if you're given an assignment at work, you should do it. You should do it well. If you have coworkers, you should treat them with honor and respect. You should love them as much as possible. You should fulfill your work duties um, as they have been given to you. And you should care for and pray for those in authority over you. And you recognize that they have some type of responsibility for you. And you have a responsibility yourself to make that relationship a good one. But then Peter, he talks about there's another type of relationship where you know, if you have a manager um, who treats you well, that's awesome. Some of us do not. Some of us work in toxic environments. Some of us do not like the people that we work for. And Peter addresses this. He says, there are unjust rulers who will take advantage of you. They will abuse you. They will make you do things that you are not comfortable doing. And what do you do then? Peter says, even then, you submit to them. We have an example of this in Genesis. If you remember the story of Joseph, and he works for Potiphar, and um, he's this trusted servant of Potiphar, and then things go awry when Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he says, this is not what I did. And from then on, he has a strained relationship with his employer. In fact, he's abused because of this. He's persecuted because of it. But Joseph continues to responsibly fulfill his duties. He honors the relationship that he's in. And we see over the long story of Joseph's life, God uses even this terrible work relationship for his good, not just of himself, but for the good of his family and for the nation. And the principle for us is that if you are in some position of, uh, if someone is in, uh, has a position of authority over you, the posi- this is our, should be our attitude. We trust that the sovereign God who knows all things and does all things well and with wisdom and concern for his people, that he has placed even these terrible, maybe, managers or bosses or authority figures over us because we know that God has given us a place a people to serve, a community to bless through what we do. And God will be good to us. He'll be faithful to us. And we'll talk more about how that will look. But this is the first point. Submission as those who belong not to managers or to companies or to uh, the country that we live in, but submission to ultimately the God who has placed us where we are. Our second point is suffering. Now here is the truth for all of us. You will suffer. You will suffer. Suffering is a reality for all of us. And um, this is the big question that we all have, whether or not we are religious, is why is there suffering? Why are there terrible things happening? Why does it seem like there are there, there is no answer. There is no reason for all these things happening. And there is a distinction that Peter makes in this passage. Um, there is a type of unjust suffering, and there is also a type of suffering that you just you kind of brought on yourself. There's this uh, scene in The Office where I think it's um, the guy that um, B.J. Novak plays. What's his name? Um, yeah, there are some Office fans here. But um, he, 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 he talks about why... I, I, uh, Ryan, thank you. Um, I, 
he, like he's going through some hard times and and Dwight Schrute he says you know sometimes the re- I'm paraphrasing sometimes the reason there is no reason for your the difficult times the only reason is that you're stupid and you brought this upon yourself and the Bible's way of phrasing that is there is sin in our lives there is sin in our hearts and we do things that do not honor God and we bring suffering upon ourselves. So that's kind of the easy answer, but there is another type of suffering in the world that pervades everything and is true of all of us, that we suffer. We suffer unjustly. Peter's writing to a church that is suffering persecution. And here are these believers who are not doing anything to antagonize anyone, and yet authorities, their neighbors, fellow residents, they are persecuting this church. And this is who Peter is addressing. And the reason why is because they are exiles, because they are so out of step with the way that the world works, that the world hates that. They don't like the message that they're hearing from these Christians. They don't like the way that these believers live. And Peter's telling them, as exiles, remember this. Suffering is a reality. And what you have, if you are in Christ, is you are equipped to think of suffering differently. And you're equipped to endure suffering. And even you can embrace it. So how are we as believers equipped to handle suffering differently? Number one, we know that this is what we're called to now. We know that we are in a world where there is no escape for suffering. And this is what you're called to. To, sorry, I'm trying to time. I, mean, I want to make sure I don't uh, speak too long and my uh, thing's not uh, functioning properly today. Um, we want to know um, how to suffer well. And the Bible tells us, let me, these are the ways in which you can know. You are called to suffering, not just as residents of this world, but specifically as followers of Christ. There is another type of suffering, another way that we can be equipped to handle suffering, because we know that this is our calling. We can have a realistic view of suffering. And actually, if you look at all the worldviews and religions, um, I think the Christian faith has a best Defense of the existence of suffering. It doesn't say that suffering is good, but explains why suffering exists. And it is completely realistic about how terrible suffering is. And it says that something has been done about it. And one day we can talk more about suffering, but specifically in the context of First Peter's audience, we are called to suffering now, and this is acknowledged in the New Testament. In Corinthians, Paul writes this, This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. He acknowledges that there is suffering, there is affliction, there is pain, and he says it's momentary. When we say it's momentary, it means that there is going to be an end. But in this moment, we are called to live in a world that is full of suffering, and we are not exempt from that suffering. And we know that in the end, Jesus will be wiping every tear from our eyes. There will be no mourning or crying or pain. This is the promise of revel- of, of, that we see in the last book of the Bible, Revelations. 
There is suffering, but there is an end. God will do something good. He will redeem our suffering, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But this is one of the ways that we are equipped to handle suffering. It's because we know that it exists. We don't have to run away from it. We can actually embrace it because God is doing something with it. Verses 19 and 20, Peter talks about suffering as a gracious thing in the sight of God. What is he saying when he says that? I think that very often when we come to church, the only thing we want to know in this moment is whether or not God is good. And this might be the only thing you care about this morning because I know sometimes that's the only thing I care about. I want to know if God is good. I don't care about this church stuff. I don't care about the community that I'm around. I need to know, is God good? And Peter says, God sees your suffering. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. God holds us as we suffer. We suffer before the face of God. This Latin phrase, quorum Deo. We are always living before the face of God. And listen to some of these promises, some of these descriptions of what God does for us. You have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. God knows every single one of your tears. He knows when you cannot sleep at night. He knows everything that is keeping you up. Psalm 139, the whole chapter is about not escaping the presence of God because God is there and He knows. He knows. Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. God will not abandon us. And is God good? Is God good? Verse 21, Peter says, This is your calling. Your calling is why you are here. And when we think about suffering, what is, if I were to ask you, give me a um, Bible verse that's, that would speak to me. I bet you one of the top three verses that would come up, come up is Romans 8.28. And um, you might know this. Uh, we know that, that um, in all things, God, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And this is uh, a really comforting verse. It's totally true. Sometimes people use it as kind of, kind of a gotcha verse or just a trite verse saying, well, God's going to do something about it. Be cool. Um, it's true, but it needs to be read in context. What has God called us to? And let me read you the, the, the rest of the, the next verse, actually. Let me read you 828 first. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And this is... The rest of the promise. You are called to be conformed to the image of his son. And what is Jesus like? And what has he experienced? We're going to sing a song later that the title is Jesus is the Man of Sorrows. Do you want to receive the promise of 828, Romans 828? Then understand that God has not called you out of suffering. Sometimes, whatever trouble you're going through, you're going to see it till the end, and it will almost destroy you. 
but the very end of it is you will be conformed to the image of his son who for him suffering was the hallmark of the life of Jesus this is what we're called to this is what we're called to there um, there was a, a missionary by the name of Chrissy Chapman who was uh, she, she was ministering in Burundi this is an African country and um, she was um, doing a humanitarian work she was telling people about Jesus there and uh, one of the things that she she did um, regularly was she would oversee a, um, a food distribution center and um, an, an aid distribution center and she met an 84 year old man who walked 15 miles to get there over the course of five days an 84 year old man walking 15 miles to receive this food and aid and this missionary she met this man and he told her his his story and he, she learned that this man uh, his entire family his wife, every one of his children was killed in the Civil War. Not only that, his home was completely destroyed. The only thing he had in the world was a clothes on his back, nothing else. No family, no home, no place to lay his head. And this is what he told this missionary. Madam, I realized... I. Madam Chrissy, Madam Missionary, I never realized that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. I never realized that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. And this is very foreign to our Western 21st century Silicon Valley, Bay Area culture. Because none of us know what this is like. None of us know what it's like to have everything taken from us. None of us, I dare say, really know what it's like to have only Jesus. Here is this 84-year-old man called to suffering. But he knew the real purpose of suffering. To be conformed to the image of Jesus. So Peter goes on. He says, what did Jesus do? He suffered. He suffered. And when we think about suffering in the context of the suffering of Jesus, um, there's, there are a few different ways that we can, we can um, think about suffering. And um, uh, Pastor Jesse and I were talking a couple days ago, and he, he was just, um, we were kind of ruminating on what suffering is, how, how suffering can be understood in the light of the sufferings of Christ. Um, and this is what, uh, what, what, we came up with there is this health and wealth prosperity gospel type of um, of uh, understanding of suffering, which is well, Jesus suffered for you so that you don't have to. Jesus bought all the riches so that you can have all the riches, so that you can have health, so that you can have wealth. Just live up this great life here on this earth. There's just this is the health and wealth prosperity t- gospel type of understanding of suffering that you shouldn't suffer. Because Christ already suffered for you. Or there is the liberal view of the suffering of Christ. Christ sets an example for your suffering. So because Jesus did that, you should suffer too. Everyone should suffer. suffer. And then there is perhaps what I think is a more balanced and more gospel-centric way of looking at the suffering of Christ, which is this, that Christ suffered not that we would not suffer, not just so that we would 
have an example of suffering, but that we could suffer well. And how did he do that? Jesus suffered for our sake so that in him we would be made right before God. Jesus suffered so that we would have an example for us to follow, like Peter writes. And he suffered so that we would be healed. There will be an end to our suffering one day. But even today, in our suffering, we can be confident that God is using it for our good. It's shaping us. It's molding us. It's transforming us. When we view suffering rightly, the pain doesn't go away, but we're able to endure it with the knowledge that God is using it to heal our sick and broken hearts. And when God heals a heart, the heart is oriented towards Jesus. And Peter, he goes on, he says, this is what the suffering of Christ looks like. And this is the example you follow. He committed no sin, verse 22. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was treated unjustly, he was not defensive. Even though he had every right to be, he did not speak up. He did not curse his accusers. He remained silent. Isaiah 53 gives us the image of a sheep silent before its shearers. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not not bite back. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to to him who judges justly. He entrusts himself to God. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is why Christ died, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this is what Peter talks about. And what is the connection between our own suffering and the suffering of Christ? The example that Christ sets for us, primarily what I see in this text is this, that he entrusts himself to God. He entrusts himself to God. What does it mean to entrust ourselves to God? I've used this example before, and I want to use it again because I can't think of a better one. Um, Imagine that you're at home one day, and um, you're just doing your thing, and um, your friend knocks on the door, and she's pounding on the door, open up, open up, and you open up the door, and this friend, keep in mind, this is someone that you've known for years, and you have done everything together, you've seen each other through highs and lows, and um, there's nothing you wouldn't do for, for this friend, and this friend, there's nothing that she wouldn't do for you. And um, you open the door, up the door, and she just says, get in the car, I need you to come with me. And she says, I have no time to explain. You just need to come with me. And you need to make a decision at that point. You have to make a split decision, a split-second decision. Do you go in the car with a friend or No. If you do, it's because you know your friend and you trust your friend. And you know that this friend would never do you harm. You know that this friend has a good heart, especially toward you. If you knew that of your friend, would you get in the car? I think you would. Even though you don't know where your friend is taking you, even though you don't know the situation, what you're doing in that moment is you are entrusting yourself to your friend. You don't see the circumstances. You don't see everything that's going to play into it. But you trust your friend. 
And this is the example that Jesus sets for us. Is here is your heavenly Father. You don't know everything that he's doing. You don't know how he's going to write your story. Your story might include terrible suffering. It may include cancer. It may include the death of a loved one. It may include chronic pain. It may include you needing to move to a place that you do not want to move to. And in those moments, to analyze the possible outcomes of your life, to think about what it's going to cost you, because that is the tendency that all of us have. But there needs to be another way for us to think, and it's this. I do not know where God is taking me. I do not know what God is calling me to. But I know that God is good. And if you can get there, then you can entrust yourself to the Lord. Um, the best example I, I, I've read of this actually happening is the story of a man named Takashi Nagai. And um, Takashi Nagai was a resident of Nagasaki in the 1940s. And if you've ever studied the religious landscape of Japan um, over the past several hundred years, you know that the majority of the Christians were persecuted and killed by the government. And by the mid-20th century, very few Christians remained. And if you ever visit Japan now, um, it's a ridiculously low number of believers. It's something like less than 1% of the Japanese population is um, are following Christ. And it's because of all this persecution and because of all this social um, rejection of the Christian faith. Well, in the 1940s, Takashi Nagai, he was a believer in Christ, and he married a Christian woman in a place called Urikame, and this is where many of the Christians in Japan settled, because the persecution by the government, it pushed them into this little area. And, um, and the history of the Christians was uh, soldiers regularly tortured and killed believers. Thousands were actually crucified. Some were sawn in half. Some were crushed to death by vehicles. Some were thrown into boiling water. And the suburb of Urikami was where, for hundreds of years, this was the reality for this place. Well, this was the 1940s, and in 1945, August... Takashi was working in the hospital when an atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. And because he was in the radiology lab of the hospital, this was the most protected part of the hospital, he survived this atomic bomb. But 70,000 other people died on that day because of the blast. And countless others would succumb to injuries and radiation in the the coming months. And... um, if you've ever read anything about um, the atomic bomb and what it does to the human body, um, don't. Or if you do, you'll, uh, you can read some horrible stories. Um, but here's the really interesting thing. If you look at World War II history, Nagasaki wasn't the intended target of the atomic bomb. When the bomber made the run... Um, its intended target was a city called Kokura, but due to bad weather and poor visibility, the military decided at the last minute to drop the bomb on the secondary target of Nagasaki. And the pilots of the bomber used the steeple of a local church. It was called the Urikami Cathedral to guide the run. 
at the very top of that steeple was a cross. And isn't that funny that they looked for the cross to drop the bomb on? The Christians of Nagasaki, they suffered terribly over the centuries by following a man who died on the cross. And once again, August 9th, 1945, the cross again would symbolize more suffering. Takashi, he stayed at the hospital to care for the injured. And he was unable to head home for two days. And when he was finally able to leave, he found his destroyed home. And he was only able to identify his wife because in a pile of ashes was a cross that his wife carried. He shoveled her remains into the bucket, but he held on to the cross. Days later, the Christians of Nagasaki, they held an open-air memorial service. Takashi was one of the speakers, and he spoke to the crowd, and he told them that he believed that God had chosen the bomb to fall specifically on the Christians of Nagasaki, not because they deserved it, but because for centuries the Christians had identified with Jesus in their suffering. And those centuries of suffering prepared them to suffer the atomic blast and the effects of it. And he concluded that the Christians of Nagasaki were chosen to give their lives so that the world would see the horrors of atomic warfare and so that it would never happen again. And you can imagine if he said that to these Japanese residents who just suffered this, they would be upsets and they were and they tried to shut him down and they said that he was crazy they said that he was wrong they were angry he continued and this is what he said happy are those who weep for they shall be comforted we must walk the way of reparation ridiculed whipped punished for our crimes sweaty and bloody but we can turn our mind's eyes to jesus carrying his cross up the hill of calvary the lord is given the lord is taken away blessed be the name of the lord and central to Takashi Nagai's thinking and central to his discipleship and following of Jesus was suffering. Just as Jesus has carried his cross, so too the Christian must carry his cross and her cross. We are called to embrace suffering, not for the sake of suffering, but knowing that there is a purpose in it. Takashi Nagai, he became world famous after this. Um, the uh, leaders would travel far distances to meet him because they thought, who is this man? Shinto priest and um, the emperor of Japan actually came to visit him um, because they could not believe that he would have such a message to give. And he wrote two books. Number one was um, about the uh, what he learned about radiology and the effects of the atomic bomb. The second was a, a biography, what his own life and what happened during the dropping of the atomic bomb. And he made enough money from those to move far away from this place of suffering. But he chose to stay in this place of intense suffering because he took seriously the message of the cross and he entrusted himself to God because... There was nothing else he could put his trust in. And so this is what we're called to. This is what we're called to. Do you believe this? That you have been rescued by God to be in exile, to live in this land of suffering, to embrace suffering. This is what we're called to let me close with just one final quote from 
Hannah, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but this is, um, I lost my page, the quote. Hannah Woodhall Smith. This is what entrusting God looks like for us. The greatest burden we carry in life is self. The most difficult thing we have to manage is self. And laying off your burdens, therefore, the first one you get rid of is yourself. You must hand yourself over into the care and keeping of your God. He made you, and therefore he understands you and knows how to manage you, and you must trust him to do it. Fellow exiles, indelible Grace Church, I don't know what type of suffering we are going through, and I don't know what type of suffering we will go through together as a church, but we can know that a good God has called us to it, and we are equipped because our King has set the example for us, and he's made it possible for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, I pray that you would... Um, these difficult subjects of, of submission and suffering, I pray that these would be difficult things that we can embrace, knowing that you are the sovereign God who cares for us in all things. And I pray that we would walk the way of the cross, the way of suffering, and as difficult as this may be to accept, I pray that you would um, prime our hearts to receive it for your glory and for the sake of... In the name of Jesus, we pray this in his name. Amen.